0: Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? Our intent is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the PPE shortage, how it's affecting medical professionals, and their innovative ideas on how to manage it. And here to discuss those are Dr. Mark Doherty and Danita Cantrell, ICU nurse leader from Baptist Health Lexington, Dr. Javed Siddiqui of Telmed to You, and Dr. Ricardo Franco of the University of Alabama. Thank you all so much for being here. I'd like to pose this question to all of you. What are you seeing in your respective practices at this time as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic? With limited resources, how are you treating your COVID-19 patients? Dr. Doherty, I'd like to start with you.
1: I think there's uh, several issues. Uh, one of the things we we know is that the, these patients are different from other respiratory failure patients. Uh, we're, uh, we're engaging in proning of the patients, uh, both uh, not... You know, we've used rotor-prone beds in the past, but they're clearly not going to be enough of those. So we're manually proning the patients, and we had to get the uh, teams together to learn how to do that safely. But that's not even just the ones that are uh, on the ventilator, but also patients who are uh, in respiratory failure and not on the ventilator. We're actively proning those patients. Uh, The um, patients. uh, we're also doing some, engaging in some other therapies, you know, because we haven't been hit as hard here in Lexington as other places, for instance, we, you know, we've had like 40 patients that our group has been taking care of. We've learned a lot about those patients in a short period of time, and we've had enough time to uh, gear up to do our convalescent plasma therapy program, which we administered to the first patient a week and a half, the first patients a week and a half ago. Uh, we've given IL-6 inhibitor therapy. And to a couple of other patients, so we've uh, we've uh, learned a lot with a few patients that we've had, and we've had time to to deal with some of it and uh, not have to be overwhelmed like some other areas of the country.
0: I'd like to turn to you, Dr. Franco. Can you weigh in on this as well?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so here, UAB uh, Army Hospital is is a large hospital. It has 1,100 active beds, and we had to convert. Um, uh, Three out of our uh, five ICUs have been converted to, to COVID care and, and, and unfortunately, we still have this steady flow of maybe 60 uh, COVID confirmed patients and, and maybe around 30, 35 persons under investigations and uh, 40 of them in ICU beds and, and, and more than half of these patients. Uh, in, in mechanical ventilation and, and, and our uh, PPE shortages uh, have been an issue uh, to the point that uh, we would have by March 30th maybe um, uh, two days left on our face shields and, and, and a few more days left on our N95s and, and, and that was just in time that an extra uh, shipment uh, was sent over to us. Uh, so that, that certainly um, influences our management and how, how we can take care of these uh, complex patients. In, in terms of, of therapy, we, we do have ongoing trials here with randesivir. Uh, we uh, will we, we'll certainly reach our code of enrolling eight patients. We, we know this trial is over-enrolling uh, in other parts of, of the country. And, and we do have some limited uh, use of hydroxychloroquine as well. And we just made uh, tosilizumab uh, available through for compassionate use, so so we might be starting uh, using that um, as well.
0: Ms. Cantrell, as an ICU nurse leader, what are you seeing on the front lines?
3: Well, Doctor Doughtery covered some of it. Um, it's been a change in the way that we are practicing by um, treating these patients a little more, well, a little differently than we we do our our normal. Patient population. Um, The isolation has been, you know, a a large factor in trying to provide the best care that you can. Um, Our hospitals allowed us to have a resource nurse on each shift to be able to, you know, go back and forth between patient rooms because it takes time to get, you know, donned correctly and enter into your patient's room. So that's been a great help. And having our intensivists and our infectious disease doctors that are so hands on and willing to help us. That's been a, an asset. Um, it was one of our intensivists that started our manual proning because like Dr. Darry said, we do use rotoprone frequently for our ARDS patients, but in pre- preparation for not being able to have a rotoprone bed, we did start manually proning. And that's been very successful and its it's been a great collabor- collaboration between the physicians and the nurses.
0: Thank you, Danita. Dr. Siddiqui.
4: Yes. um, I think one of the interesting aspects is that our clinical practice, um, we're in multiple uh, uh, types of clinical settings at one time. So uh, for us, it's just been dealing with um, patients in lots of different settings. So we're seeing patients at home. So we're definitely, you know, we're doing some forward triage and trying to Um, explain to the patients their clinical situation and how best to handle it. Uh, We're working with patients in outpatient clinics and um, trying to Uh, provide the best care that we can. And I think one of the things that has been challenging has been access to testing. And uh, that, I think, has been one of the most uh, uh, frustrating aspects for both the patients as well as the providers. And then in the hospitals, since we cover such a fairly large geography and cover a number of hospitals um, of all different sizes and locations, we're seeing a stark. Um, variation in presentation. In one of our more urban hospitals, we're definitely seeing Um, a lot more um, cases of COVID-19 and presentations that have been everything from mild to moderate uh, all the way to requiring ICU care. And then some of our more rural hospitals um, are just seeing the mild to moderate patients. So trying to keep, as Dr. Doherty said, um, this incredibly complex pandemic with a complex varying presentation state Um, it's been challenging, but it's also been incredibly interesting from an infectious disease standpoint. And it's been wonderful to see um, the utilization and the application of telemedicine across all these different clinical settings.
0: I appreciate that insight, Dr. Siddiqui. Dr. Doherty, I'd like to turn back to you now. You and I recently discussed some of the innovative practices your 11-person ID facility is putting into place to deal with the dire PPE shortage that healthcare professionals Nationwide are facing. Can you tell us about those?
1: Well, I think there's, you know, there's several issues here. One, in terms of conservation of PPE, one of the first things we need is rapid uh, point of care testing, and that's ramping up pretty quickly. Uh, we, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, we've been waiting sometimes ten days to get the lab core test back on these, and these patients have been in the airborne and contact precautions, and we're just blowing through the PPE while we're waiting for the test to come back. Whereas if we had a rapid point of care test, we could get them out of the uh, airborne and contact precautions. Um, Another thing that we've really emphasized, as I mentioned before, is telemedicine in our own hospital. We're trying to strictly limit the number of uh, healthcare providers that are going in the room. Uh, The only ones that should go in the room are the ones that are delivering direct patient care. The doctors really shouldn't be going in the room just to examine the patient. If they have to put a dialysis catheter in, then so be it. They have to do a procedure on the patient. But otherwise, everything can be done outside of the room. Uh, We started off using these kind of uh, what I consider clunky uh, 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 web-connected devices with a computer on a cow and an iPad, and sometimes the audio would work, and sometimes it wouldn't, and sometimes it would take me over an hour to examine one patient. So we've now switched to using uh, iPads Uh, They could either be dedicated to the room or be brought in and out of the room and cleansed. Right now we're bringing them in and out of the rooms and cleansing them. And then I have a Bluetooth stethoscope with ear pods that I'm using uh, if I need to listen to their heart or lungs. Uh, Most of the time, you know, these patients, you, you don't really have to listen to their lungs every day. You can see what their lung function is by their ventilatory settings and their radiographic studies. Uh, but you can really get a surprisingly thorough physical exam with the assistance of the nurse. And this is not just uh, an issue of, well, the doctors shouldn't go in, but the nurses should. It's really an issue of no one should be in that room that doesn't absolutely have to be in the room uh, for, for direct patient care as a PP conservation issue. And uh, if you have two people blowing in and out, I remember seeing a FaceTime video of a nurse a few weeks ago that said, I just blew through 50 and 95s That was in one day, taking care of one patient. Our nursing staff is using one N95 at most in a day and really trying to stretch it out. So we're having each individual provider reuse their N95s. We're protecting the N95 uh, to mitigate the fomite issue. We're protecting that with a surgical mask, which they then throw away. And we're also protecting them with a face shield. So they're going in with a face shield, the N95, a surgical mask covered by the n 95 and then reusing uh, the N95, and at one point we said just until it's soiled. So one nurse this weekend said that he thought he would have used 200 N95s in place of that one that he had saved if we have, weren't doing it this way. So I think in this situation, you know, we have we have limited resources. Uh, we have to risk stratify and try to figure out how we're going to radically conserve and preserve our uh, our personal protective gear and. Uh, you know, ultimately, we'll be doing um, uh, hydrogen peroxide gas sterilization. In fact, I think that's going to be up and running this week uh, here. Uh, so perhaps we'll just need to use each individual, just need to use one N95 a day, and then we'll gas uh, sterilize them with hydrogen peroxide. Uh, but I think there, we have to think out of the box in the terms of the way that we're uh, delivering care. We really shouldn't be having people in there. Uh, an ID doctor really shouldn't be even going in the room, for instance. Uh, you can do everything outside of the room that you need to do. Now, uh, we did a video of, of what I'm talking about and put it up on our website uh, last night. It's lexidc.com, and uh, so anyone who wants to is, uh, you know, can look at that and see how we're trying to, you know, preserve the N95s. And I think this is a, a message for places that don't, you know, have enough N95s or other PPE. Uh, we had a shipment coming in of 300000 and then they were just diverted and disappeared. So we can't depend on someone else to come to our rescue. We have to deal with our own resources here.
0: Thank you for that, Dr. Doherty. Clearly a lot going on at your facility. I appreciate your time on that question. Switching gears now, last week, CMS made an unprecedented decision to ease Medicare billing limitations as they relate to telehealth. Dr. Siddiqui, what is your take on that?
4: Well, you know, it's been a tremendous um, uh, opportunity for everyone who's been working in telemedicine for a long time uh, and those who are new to telemedicine. So um, uh, I think a cu- couple of the highlights from the new CMS regulations, um, to use a term, um, one ha- one of the last... Um, uh, one of the last uh, desired issues in telemedicine has been um, the designated healthcare facility issue and the metropolitan service area issue. And both of these were, um, were augmented and changed uh, on the CMS regulation for this pandemic. So let me go into a little bit of detail. So um, initially, telemedicine was only covered in Uh, by CMS if the patient was in a designated healthcare facility. So the patient had to be in a clinic, had to be at a hospital, had to be at a um, facility that's a designated healthcare facility in order for Um, uh, the provider to be able to bill CMS. Well, that has been lifted. And and that's been something that those of us in telemedicine, I've been actively doing telemedicine since 2002, um, that we have really been asking CMS for. And uh, because it really opens up uh, the home um, for telemedicine services. So now uh, providers all across the United States are able to see their patients in their home setting and be able to build CMS. So that's a tremendous opportunity um, and welcome change. The second is that CMS only uh, covered telemedicine services if the services were delivered in a non metropolitan service area. So if a location or a hospital, a clinic was in a metropolitan service area, then you could not build CMS. Again, that designation has been lifted during this. Um, um, during this emergency period. So now you can deliver telemedicine services regardless of the location that the patient is in and regardless of the location your clinic is in. So th- this really just opens up everywhere uh, for the delivery of telehealth services. I think this is incredibly important to providing good healthcare and to providing access to healthcare for the population, as well as really Getting people who uh, never really considered telemedicine to um, use telemedicine and realize the power of the medium, and really also realize that at the end of the day, it's just a tool. They're still they're still the physician. They're still the provider delivering their healthcare. The te- uh, telemedicine is just simply a tool for them to do that. Is this the solution to the PPE shortage? Well, I I really want to um, acknowledge Dr. Doherty and his innovative thinking. Uh, Dr. Doherty and I have been talking about telemedicine for years. And I think that um, what Dr. Doherty is doing and some of the other uh, Hospitals across the United States um, looking at telemedicine as a PPE conservation tool is absolutely fabulous. Um, That's been something we've been talking about for a long time. When you're using telemedicine, you're not only increasing access to care, but in this setting, you are preserving PPE. So, this is exactly what Dr. Doherty was describing earlier in his program. So, when we are seeing those patients, whether it be uh, in a clinic setting or in a hospital setting because we're using telemedicine we're preserving that PPE and right now that is a as everyone knows as an incredibly important concept so um, uh, my uh, infectious disease mentor Dr. Steve Jose in Santa Barbara was just telling me over the weekend that they too are uh, doing this and the fact that they're using iPads um, in order to see patients for regular rounding obviously that um, This, again, allows all the different consultants that are seeing a patient to be able to see the patient, interact with the patient, but yet not have to utilize um, PPEs in order uh, to uh, evaluate the patient on a daily basis. So... Uh, One of our hospitals, what we've done is uh, we've placed uh, uh, iPads, uh, designated iPads in all of the ICUs. So in each of the ICU units, um, we have designated iPads. Um, We have them numbered um, very innovatively, ICU one through nine, and any of the healthcare consultants uh, can access those at any time using our secure network and are able to see the patient interact with the patient, um, assess the patient, again, without using PPEs. So I think it's a tremendous uh, opportunity. I think it's something that we need to do more of throughout the United States. And it's uh, refreshing to hear uh, the success stories that everyone has with regards to this strategy.
0: Thank you for that insight, Dr. Siddiqui. Moving on now, let's talk about the emotional toll and anxiety healthcare professionals are dealing with as they worry about exposing not only themselves to the virus, but their families and others. Dr. Franco, let's start with you this time. Are you and your teams dealing with this as you treat COVID-19 patients daily?
2: Yes, uh, we we certainly um, have seen a a tremendous uh, emotional toll, uh, uh, a tremendous uh, anxiety, um, we, we did have um, a, a fair amount of employees and um, healthcare workers that um, um, uh, were exposed and, and infected, and, and they do require a, a very close follow-up uh, in, in every aspect of their care, uh, including the fear of spreading it and, um, and of course, their uh, health condition um, uh, it itself. Uh, it, it is uh, something that we're paying uh, a lot of attention to, and even uh, offering uh, physicians and, and employees uh, who test positive and who wish to isolate from their families, uh, providing uh, housing uh, resources for them uh, here in our uh, UAB campus with um, um, uh, uh, food assistance and, and and all those needs that um, uh, uh, that, that arise, and, and of course. Uh, uh, really discussing for the ones that they are able to distance themselves at home, uh, to take all the steps not to bring the disease home, and for those who are infected and able to isolate in in, in a different room, uh, to do that and be followed and, and, and be oriented to, to compliance, and, and that emotional support through quarantine and that, that lonely time were. Um there's not so much to do and a lot to think about. So so we, we do find very importantly that that regular calls and, and just checking on them, even if everything else is under control, that, that takes this emotional toll away from them.
0: Thank you for that, Dr. Franco. Danita, I'd like to turn to you now. What are you and your team seeing as you deal with this emotional stress and anxiety right now?
3: Um, I would agree with a lot of what he just said. Um, it's very stressful. It's the staff, they see, um, we have had a physician assistant and a physician, both in um, the ICU on ventilators, very critically ill. And it's made them stop and think, gosh, you know, what am I gonna do if I'm having to take care of the person that's working beside me? Um, we as a, a unit actually started a support group um, and we're doing it via Zoom. And so anyone can join and, um, it was interesting last night, the fear of giving it to others, of course, was one of the hot topics. But they also felt guilt, um, guilt for being away from their families, having to send you know their kids to their parents' houses or you know or other places. Um, it, it's been very, very, very stressful on them. Um, you know, and I would like to say something about the telemedicine also. So that was kind of a source of stress initially. So when our physicians initially wanted to start doing the telemedicine and having the nurse taking the iPad into the room, nurses felt like they were being, per se, thrown to the wolves. But when they understood that it was to conserve our PPE and they you know, actually listened to the rationale behind it, they were more accepting of it. And one thing that I would like for all the physicians to to think about is coordinating with your nurse and making the time where it's not an additional time for the nurse to have to go into the room, that you all are coordinating your care so they can go in the room while they're doing something already and then, you know, include the physician exam. Um, and, you know, and it's also been, and this has been a different stress, but like with the visitor restrictions that we have in place, you know, that's been hard on staff too, and you kind of wonder how, but the phone calls you know families are very very worried about their loved ones as they should be and the nurses are trying to be the the comforter to those families and then which on also if we've got someone that's actually actively dying we allow um one to possibly two family members in depending on the situation but there was a, a situation a few weeks ago where it was only the wife of a patient so my nurse turned into their complete support system because they had no one else there with them while you know, the patient passed away.
1: One other thing that the uh, iPads have been useful for is uh, uh, visits for the families. So um, I, uh, the other day when I was doing a visit with a patient from New York uh, whose hu- husband can't be here uh, for obvious reasons, Uh, I actually took him uh, with the iPad and introduced him to the nursing staff and he encouraged them and they were waving at him. And then he was, uh, he could see how I was examining his wife from outside the room. And then we took him inside the room with the iPad where he could actually uh, talk to her, even though she was uh, sedated, at least, uh, you know, perhaps she understood something, but it was, it's really a way to, to also stay connected with the families, even though everyone is socially isolated.
3: We have found that that has been um, a big satisfier for families because they can't be here. Um, being able to see their loved one on the iPad via Zoom or FaceTime, that, that's helped a lot.
1: I think the nurses really appreciated hearing from the families too and uh, how incredibly appreciative they were of uh, all the efforts that were being made.
0: Dr. Doherty, I'd like to stay with you here. Can you walk me through some of the steps healthcare professionals are taking? to help protect others in their households.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's crucially important is that everyone needs to be wearing a mask in the hospitals. Now, I I hope all the hospitals have have switched to that, just a surgical mask, because the initial theme was that a trickle of patients would come in, and then more patients, and then all of a sudden you got flooded with patients, the healthcare workers got exposed, they exposed each other, and then they exposed patients. And uh, we've certainly seen that theme here. we had an exposure of almost our entire ICU team, and uh, and I said, okay, this is an emergency. We've got to have everyone put a face mask on now. Now that's an, uh, that could be a supply issue because how many how many regular surgical masks do we have? We don't have one for people to be throwing them away uh, multiple times a day. <clears throat> so at this point, we've given one uh, everyone a daily mask that they're supposed to use, and then they can dispose of it. But I think ultimately, as a conservation issue, we may just give people uh uh, two or three masks like we've done in our office and say here's your mask for the duration you're the steward of your own mask and you rotate it each day uh i think we have to really think about some of those things in terms of conservation efforts but it's also an attempt to uh not give the virus to each other so i'm wearing this mask to prevent giving it to someone else not to prevent them from giving it to me so it's a, a reverse of what we've been thinking in the past um of course it's very difficult to do social distancing at home you know i haven't seen my uh, grandchildren or my mother for weeks on end and we're just having to facetime or sometimes we you know go uh they can come over to our house and they're out in the yard and we're talking to them from outside the window uh, but it's uh it, you have you still have to socially distance and aggressively use hand hygiene and and i you know who knows how long this is going to go on for it's it's very it's it's good it's really taking its toll i wonder What kind of toll is taking on, you know, my grandkids who want to come up and uh, hug me, but I say, no, you stay away from me. Um, It's, uh, (laughs) there are things that we can do. There are things that we can do, but it's still difficult.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine. It must be so difficult. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Doherty. So it's clear that medical professionals are at considerable risk of becoming infected with COVID-19 due to the lack of PPE. What recommendations do you have for your colleagues and institutions nationwide and abroad in order to handle this crisis within a crisis and while still working to save lives? Dr. Siddiqui, I'd like to start with you.
4: Well, I think that... um we have to look at how we utilize technology, and I think that the conversation today has been incredibly important to say we can integrate technology into areas of our healthcare that we didn't think about before. And it's not to, um, it's not for any other reason, but want to be more efficient. Uh, two to uh, conserve our limited resources, and three to expand access to that medical specialist. Um, uh, the infectious disease physicians throughout the United uh, throughout the United States are working tirelessly, but they their impact uh, at times may be very focused, uh, whether it be in a limited geographic area. Um, Using technologies such as telemedicine and telehealth really allows um, uh, that expertise of our physicians um, to be broadcast to a much larger group. And one of the things I think we need to do is as the clinical trials uh, expand is really look at the utilization of telemedicine in these clinical trials. Uh, it's tremendous that our academic centers like UAB have um, multiple clinical trials going on, but it would be tremendous to be able to get access to some of these clinical trials through telemedicine to some of the community and rural hospitals across the United States so they can have access to some of these um, uh, opportunities, but yet still be able to participate in the trials in order to gather this valuable um, uh, valuable information to make appropriate uh, decisions.
0: I appreciate your response, Dr. Siddiqui. Dr. Franco? Yes,
2: uh, I agree with uh, Javid. Uh, uh, Technology is actually, if you think of a hospital, uh, hospitals, they now, uh, they, they tend to have a command center that, that is composed by infection control uh, critical care, infectious diseases, emergency medicine, uh, bad control, administrators, employee health, all these people are greatly benefiting from, from technology so, so they can be all in the same room at the same time, not, not physically present, but at least uh, sharing that same venue of communication at the same time. And that hospital leadership also have access to health officials who, in, in in their turn, uh, contact the, the 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 state governments uh, at, at the federal level and the manufacturing production and the purchases and allocations that hopefully technology is going to actually help PPE to reach us um, uh, in in a faster way. So I, I I cannot agree more. But but with the the role of technology, uh, and in the meantime, we're doing everything we can. I mean, hospitals they're really we are really doing their best already to limit how germs can, can enter the facilities. We, we have canceled all elective procedures. Um, I, I do echo that, that we're also using telemedicine in our units. We do, we do have iPads. We do have uh, um, um, uh, rolling cows with similar capabilities. So, so uh, we're limiting uh, the amount of people entering the rooms and, and doing physical exams. Uh, limiting the, our visitor policies and 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 and, and patient circulation and, and doing all those things um, uh, in a way that that we can uh, preserve uh, PPEs. We, we're doing uh, universal uh, uh, mask use. There's is, there's is a lot of training and retraining that goes on with with the the, the proper donning and doffing technique. Um, and, and, also, and also training providers to preserve their mask, their N95s, especially as long as possible, especially by the way you, you, you're you doing the doffing of that mask, so you're not touching the, the surface and you're feeling comfortable in, in, in really um, um, maintaining that mask as, as long as possible. And, and very simple things that goes with this in COVID units that the it's beneficial to have champions that that, that do the white wipe cleaning, the, the sanitizing cleaning of all the the, the surfaces and telephones and desktops um, and in handles and um, all that really to um, uh, preserve uh, PPEs as 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 much as possible until uh, the 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 support from from government and and the recent um, um, uh, emergency funding. Um, uh, comes into reality and and, and makes a difference so that we can maintain this operation as long as necessary.
0: I'd like to stay on that. It's our last question, Dr. Franco. Great segue there. So Congress has appropriated billions of dollars, as you know, of new emergency funding to support and manufacture and distribute essential medical supplies, including PPE. Are these funds making a difference yet in your practice and are they enough?
2: Yeah, so uh, l- like I mentioned, uh, our hospital has been uh, hit hard by um, uh, this this uh, COVID-19 uh, tsunami. Um, and, and we're really at a situation before the last PPE supply where we're counting our days left on N95s, procedural masks, and, and isolation uh, gowns. And um, uh, so, so our PPE was really running short. Uh, And I I don't think the the emergency funding has translated as of yet in in real support, but we're really hoping uh, for for this help to to be a reality uh, in the upcoming days. Um, I I did want to share a piece that um, uh, I read out of um, uh, Dr. Feinberg, who is the former president, of the National Academy of Sciences. He wrote a really nice piece for the New England Journal of Medicine that I think resonates with um, uh, a lot of uh, infectious diseases clinicians uh, in the first line. And, 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 uh, and I think it will resonate uh, with you as well, where he, he basically makes a call for, for 10 weeks so we can um, uh, crush the curve, not really flatten the curve, but really crush the curve and and he he elaborates in a few points um, and and I'll go over them briefly. Uh, He mentions that we need to establish and maintain a unified command federally and within states and this command should not be a, um, a near coordination across agencies, it should be uh, something that exert full power and authority uh, coming from the president's support to mobilize every civilian and military asset needed to win this what is called a war against the virus. We need millions of diagnostic tests available and of course um, a tremendous supply he elaborates uh, for healthcare workers So we can have plenty, not not only just to go by, but plenty of PPE so we can optimize our processes in a way we can uh, protect uh, our employees um, in a hospital uh, as physicians and nurses. And, And most importantly inspire and mobilize the public in an all out effort where everyone can help reduce the risk of exposure and support their friends and neighbors in this critical time. So if, if we do all this, as we're learning on the fly and doing fundamental research at the same time and trying to find a new antivirus uh, to treat this disease uh, for, the, for the, the classical enrollment that we see in clinical trials or perhaps leveraging telemedicine, like Jeffy mentioned, um, then, then we can maybe as early as possible uh, guide the guided by all this uh, begin to revive businesses of all kinds and and um, um, and get out of the situation but it would have to be an all-out effort and and i think that's if you ask me what we need from the government i think this kind of approach this this uh, piece is really a blueprint that we should look at carefully
0: I appreciate your insight on that question. Thank you very much, Dr. Franco. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any last words to our panel.
1: Well, this is Dr. Doherty. I think we we all need to be communicating at a local level. Our, our ID group is talking uh, half an hour each day on teleconference. We're talking with the other hospitals in the Bluegrass region here. We have a statewide infectious disease Zoom video conference once a week. I'm talking to our U.S. Congressman once or twice a day to try to help deal with the federal issues. So we need to communicate and have teamwork at multiple different areas. Uh, I think there's been a kind of a disconnect with what the people at the federal level think is going on as opposed to the local uh, level. So I'm trying to communicate that or am communicating that with our local congressman who's been very, very helpful. Uh, There's, in addition to not having enough PPE, there's obviously a maldistribution of PPE when someone an ID doctor from outside the state says I have a problem. I have 60,000 N95s and 2,000 surgical masks. I mean that that's in a small hospital. That you know that tells me what I'm kind of suspicious of. That there's a a mal distribution issue, and <clears throat> we really need you know companies that are involved in you know supply supply st- uh, chain distribution working on that with us. But right? Um, in, in addition to that, I think if we really radically conserve uh, our PPE, like I've been talking about, we we can get over this and have enough PPE and don't have to run out and tell uh, healthcare workers to go in and take care of a patient with the scarf on, like happened in some areas.
0: What a great discussion. At this time, we'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Dr. Mark Doherty, Dr. Javed Siddiqui, Dr. Ricardo Franco, and Danita Cantrell. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest developments on the outbreak.